Welcome to the Astro Podcast. My name is John Eckstein. I'm the Chief Investment Officer of Astro Investment Management. I'm joined today by my friend and partner, Brian Novak. Brian, hello. Hello. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. So this is not our regular economic update podcast. This is a podcast where we're going to talk a little bit about one of our strategies, active income, why we think that you need an active income strategy in your portfolio. And if you have one, you should think about ours. So let's start with just talking about what's an active income strategy, sort of generic, not our strategy, but what is it and what's its place in the portfolio? So the way that I think it active strategies, whether it be an equity or fixed income are generally viewed, is that it's an active around a benchmark or active around a category, so to speak, when someone's looking at CMBS or something like that, or you know, an investment grade fund, like they have guardrails, if you will, around how much it can go outside the boundaries of what the benchmark allocation is. But the whole goal is to sort of either pick individual bonds or move into different categories with the goal of generally trying to outperform that benchmark and utilizing that approach. And that's generally what you see with an active strategy, at least within this universe. So in dynamic allocation, what we typically adjust is the beta, the ratio of stocks and bonds to the portfolio. What's the equivalent in a fixed income portfolio? Sure. So as you mentioned, dynamic allocation tries to pick the asset allocation mix, right? Equities to fixed income, generally speaking. So we're trying to slice up that fixed income part of it, not by picking individual bonds, but what we spend our time doing is saying the most two most important things we can do is pick the appropriate credit area to be in and also pick the appropriate duration. Picking bonds and individual bonds is equivalent to picking individual stocks can add some alpha. However, the most meaningful things we can do are be in the right spot for duration. As we saw in 2022, being low duration definitely mitigated a lot of the risk to the moving rates. But also on the credit side, when you get into an environment where credit spreads move adversely, you know, having less exposure to that area or being higher quality definitely can help to mitigate those risks. On the other side, there's opportunities when those spreads start to move in. So we try to identify the condition of the economy and also what interest rate activity looks like, Fed policy, and make our decisions about where to be in duration, how much rate risk we want to have, and how much credit risk we want to have. Yeah, I think that's possible. And a broad, strong economy, you know, we do have a few little overhangs. And so if those clear up, then maybe we can move to a situation like that. The way I like to think about it, and one of our internal reports is imagine like a scatter plot with duration on the x-axis. So a 30-year bond would be sort of way on the right side of that axis, and then credits on the y-axis going up and down. So junk bonds would be at the top of that. And right in the middle is the Bloomberg aggregate index. And then we're adjusting relative to that. Sometimes we're going to have more duration than that. Sometimes we'll want to have less. Sometimes we'll have more credit exposure. Sometimes we'll want to have less. That's usually the way I like to think about it. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And investors, as we mentioned before, not having to face the other side of what happens in that, you know, that rising rate environment. And then As we look at where we are now, who knows how long that's actually going to hold. But I think what was a wake-up call was the U.S., the Bloomberg U.S. Aggregate Bond Index was down over 13% last year. 
Yeah. And that's a lot. I mean, that's a lot in equity world. And I think, you know, equity investors are versed in risk and are used to taking some losses like that, but fixed income investors are not. And I think what that hopefully has taught us and it taught us investors, advisors alike, is that there are risks that need to be mitigated or at least try to have a strategy that helps shift. And I, I think the most powerful things that we can do, it's not in picking individual bonds. That's great. And that definitely can help improve alpha, things like that, generally in the margins. But the things that are most impactful are how much credit and how much duration you have in exposure. And that's exactly what active income is designed to do. Yeah, that's sort of our standard approach, right? Is that we should spend most of our time doing the most important thing, which is picking the portfolio, right? Like once you've decided the amount of the asset classes that are in your portfolio, sort of 90% of the variance is baked in the cake there. And that's what we like to focus on. And so last year, you mentioned aggregate index was down 13%. And that was both duration and credit. That was a problem there, right? That was both. The most impactful one was obviously duration with the ag index being higher duration sensitivity with a higher credit rating. But yeah, I think that that premise rings true across all of us. If you have your aggregate core index exposure, you have a target of essentially a target that if this happens, then you're going to be at the mercy of the risk that, that happens. And last year was just that. So advisors are faced with the issue of, do we take upon ourselves to make those adjustments within the income portfolio to move things around, to take advantage of, or to help mitigate the risks that are occurring? Because income investing is, it's different than equity investing, where you have a lot more risk sensitivity. You know, folks are generally looking for income, but they're looking for a more stable portfolio. And let's be honest, volatility has been extremely high in the bond market over the last year and a half, for sure. And whether that persists or not, we're definitely in a different environment than we were with QE, moving to QT, rate hikes, et cetera. But tasking the advisor with having to make those decisions themselves is just adding one more chore to their task list. And having a strategy like the active income strategy combined with their core which is a message we always like to preach within our strategies is combine us with that passive core and we will help make those adjustments to the key risks that are in a portfolio to help. You're not going to save every loss. You're not going to make every gain. But what you hopefully can do is achieve a better profile and help to mitigate some of those risks to make the outcome more achievable, but also lessen the nerves and the risks that investors have to go through. Yeah, I, I think uh, reassuring people is kind of one of our big jobs because like a lot of times individual investors will get out of something at exactly the wrong time, right? Like you're cruising along or something, you get a big drawdown in a risky asset, big drawdowns are expected, they're risky for a reason, and you get out right in the middle of the drawdown. So having somebody help you as an advisor make those decisions when to scale, I think could be helpful. You know, I thought it might be interesting for people to hear what we're doing at our monthly investment committee meetings with this. And basically, the idea is, you know, we've got this universe of fixed income ETFs, you can choose from anything, and where on the credit and duration spectrum do we want to be? And so 
we do make some large moves, though just like dynamic allocation, they tend to be evolutionary, not revolutionary, right? And so if we came into 2022 with duration exposure, actually fairly close to the aggregate bond index and cut our duration exposure maybe seven or eight times during the year. And then in credit, it was something similar as the astroeconomic index deteriorated, you know, anticipating a slower economy, we cut our credit exposure there. So now we're positioned with substantially less duration risk and about the same credit risk as the Bloomberg aggregate. Yeah, I think that's the important things to highlight within how a strategy like ours goes about constructing this type of portfolio. And as you mentioned before, the process is, it's evolutionary. It's not a all-in-one type trade. You don't wake up next month and decide you're going to go from triple Bs to triple As or pile back into high yields. That's not what we do. What we're trying to ascertain is what are the trends in the economic environment and what conditions does that support? So last year, as we moved into the year, and even then, as you mentioned, our duration was closer to the U.S. ag bond benchmark, and it slowly evolved further down from there. In fact, to the point right now where we're about a third of the duration of the U.S. ag bond index. But that doesn't mean that you know opportunities don't exist when you start reducing risk. Obviously, yields are higher on the short end right now, so that definitely helps. But you can also compile a portfolio that is able to be positioned to increase that yield. Like focusing on what the risk is and what we continue to see is duration. We've improved the credit quality over the past year and a half as the economy has gotten a little bit weaker or trended lower. But we're able to sort of maintain that roadmap of trying to achieve what we believe and what our indicators are showing us are the best opportunities you know, within the market. And just because there's risk doesn't mean there's not opportunities. And that's how we position it. And that's how we try to help contribute to the cause of what the overall goal of the portfolio is. And when do you think that we would think about adding duration back? I know that's uh, obviously something we continue to talk about. It. We talk about every. We talked about this every week uh, or every uh, investigative meeting for the last eight months when we sort of bottomed out in the middle of the second half of last year. Is today today? Is today today? Like yields are higher. Are they high enough? Is the risk down? What are you looking at? To, to- I I find myself waking up with that question: Are we adding duration? Are we adding duration? <laughs> I'm of the camp now. I mean, right now, you know, we, it, if you look at it, do you add duration to try to, you know, lock in some yield or lock in some minimized reinvestment risk, right? Or try to get yeah. some capital appreciation. And, you know, right now with the curve, you know, as we sit here on August 11th, having this conversation, the yield curve is still inverted by over 70, 80 basis points. And the question is, it's like, is that going to resolve with the long end? Tenure coming up, you beat it, you know, or does that happen with the short end coming down, right? And I think where we sit in position right now, with there being unknown still in the environment, the Fed is certainly looks like they're on a pause, save for any new information coming in from the inflation side. And 
you know, I guess that's a thing too, John, right? Is that while we've had, they call, I see this coin, the summer of disinflation, we're certainly at a point now where people are wondering, like, is there going to be an uptick you know, back in this? But well, I guess what that brings us to is that inflation is not hitting the Fed's target anytime within the next couple months. And people are still concerned about that particular part of the environment. And the good news might be bad news type of thing, where if the labor market stay strong, you know, and prices stay up, the Fed's not going to be in a condition to pull back just yet, right? So I think where we sit right now with yields more attractive on the short end, there being potential risk on the long end, that maybe inflation, it, it, it seems hard for us to see inflation a while out being anchored higher. But that is the question the market will have to answer at some point. But right now, I think with current conditions and what might be the case, especially if rates resolve you know, to the downside at some point, being short duration certainly seems to be an attractive place to be. And I think the risk reward certainly seems to be more favorable on that side. That's how I perceive it at this point. Yeah. And I guess I'm wondering if I'm slipping a little bit more optimistic about inflation and you know, it could be the case that once you're convinced the Fed is going to stop raising rates, then maybe wherever the yield is, maybe that's like, okay, that's what you get. And and I don't know that I'm ready to say that the Fed's going to stop raising rates, but you know, we get another couple of inflation numbers like these, and you still think that there's still some of the effects of the tightening left to come in, and it might be time to call it there. Yeah. And I, I you know, one of the other interesting dynamics and that within the treasury market seems to be now moving north of 4%. Like there is a strong appetite by a, a big buying segment of the market that yeah. if we can lock in 4% for a 10 year period, like that seems to be a good deal to match up assets liabilities, right? So I guess the answer to your question depends on what question you're particularly asking from that side. Like what is your, what is your particular reason for moving out into that part of the curve? And I think for on the credit side, being that, you know, we use the astroeconomic index to help us make investment decisions, you know, we're going to want to see that improving before we take on more credit risk, probably. Yeah. And one of the things that I, I feel like I keep talking about this, because maybe I just keep reading more stories about it, but the commercial real estate market is different than the residential real estate market. But there does seem to be a growing concern about the potential domino effect refinancing these loans. And I think it really seems to focus on these regional and local banks that have, you know, north of two trillion dollars in exposure to these commercial loans that if they find themselves in a position of having to sell them, there's been recently some trying to go going to market on some of these loans and there's the bid ask spread seems to be substantially wide where it, it doesn't seem feasible or reasonable to sell at those bids. But if it gets to a position and if there's some market cause that makes the banks act on that, that could be a bit of a problem that could resume in the regional bank end of things. And I think that might cause a bit of a scare in the credit markets. All right. I think we'll leave it there, Brian. I think the message that I want advisors to get is to think of active income as something which is going to adjust tilts in your standard fixed income portfolio. Sometimes you want more credit, sometimes you want less duration. And that's what we're supposed to do there is to take your standard 
high beta portfolio, fixed portfolio, 60-40, whatever, and, and we'll add some nuance onto it when appropriate. And if you want more information about active income, you can reach out to your Astor sales representative. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, John. To learn more about Astor Investment Management's research and strategies, please visit us on the web at www.astoram.com or stay up to date by following us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Thank you. Astor Investment Management, LLC, is a SEC-registered investment advisor. All information contained herein is for informational purposes only. This is not a solicitation to offer investment advice or services in any state where to do so would be unlawful. Analysis and research are provided for informational purposes only, not for trading or investing purposes. All opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and subject to change. They are not intended as investment recommendations.